Do we have audio? Check. We got a host? Yes, check. A lot to discuss? For sure. Check. Alright, let's start up episode 117 of The Far Middle. Our dedication in the world of sports goes to a birthday boy on our first day of broadcast, which is August 16th. He was born in 1930, which meant he was a little kid in the middle of the Great Depression and a teenager during World War II. His name was Frank Gifford. Now, some knew him as a Hall of Fame football player. That's how they best knew him, who played for the New York football giants in the 1950s and 1960s. The people in my age bracket, they probably knew him best after he retired from football when he became a highly successful television sports commentator. He was the play-by-play announcer and commentator for 27 years on ABC's Monday Night Football. And Monday Night Football was a massive event when I was a kid growing up. You had that intro music to the uh, to the broadcast, dun-dun-dun-dun. And then the announcers, right, wearing those gold blazers. Howard Cosell, Dandy Don Meredith, both of them providing more than their share of ad lib and personality. I guess some would argue too much of that, especially in the case of uh, Howard Cosell, depending on your personal taste. But Gifford, he was that steady and solid anchor of that crew. And Gifford once quipped about his partners. He said, frankly, I feel like I'm facing a firing squad. It's not what I have to do on Monday night that's so hard. It's who I have to do it with. It's a good one. And Gifford, by the way, he was also famous for always saying during those rivalry games. So when you had the uh, the Steelers playing the Browns or the Raiders and Broncos, Cowboys, Eagles on Monday night football, he would always say anything can happen when these two great teams get together. God, I love Monday night football back then, but not so much now. I also love Gifford's work on ABC's Wide World of Sports, you know, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat intro. I spent many a Saturday afternoon as a kid watching Gifford on ABC Wide World. A lot of boxing, by the way, on that program. But Frank Gifford, you know, getting back to his football career, he was a great football player before he became an announcer, All-American at Southern Cal, um, played both ways for the Giants as a pro. He won the NFL MVP award in 1956, which was the same season that the Giants won the NFL championship. And during his career, he participated in five league championship games, and he was named to eight Pro Bowls for three different positions. So he was very versatile. He was an all-pro wide receiver, at running back, and also a defensive back. Pro Football Hall of Fame inducted him back in 1977. And I know a lot of you constant listeners realize that I love sports history. Gifford uh, was the unfortunate recipient of what many consider to be the hardest hit in the history of the game of football. In fact, he lost 18 months, a year and a half, in his prime of his career when he was, and I'm going to use this term lightly, when he was tackled, while others might use the term assaulted, by Philadelphia Eagles legendary linebacker Chuck Bednarik. The uh, the November 1960 play is often referred to simply as the hit, and Gifford was knocked out by the Eagles' Bednarik on a passing play, suffering a severe head injury that led him to retire from football in 1961 for at least a hiatus until he changed positions from running back to flanker, came back the following year. And there is an iconic photo of uh, Bednarik standing over a knocked-out Gifford right after that hit, and Chuck Bednarik, he signed a copy of that photo for me about 25 years ago. And when he was good enough to autograph that photo, I asked him what he was saying in the photo when he was standing over Gifford. 
And his reply to me was, he said, uh, I said, this effing game is over. He's got that gruff voice. Chuck Bednarik was a very interesting, awesome personality. But yeah, two greats, Chuck Bednarik and Frank Gifford, and two Hall of Famers who went head-to-head literally on that play. Uh, Frank Gifford lost that one, but he won in the long run along with Chuck Bednarik. It seems as if every time we do a dedication on the far middle of an exceptional athlete like a Frank Gifford, it brings to mind a few truths in life. One being that in competitive worlds and arenas, there is always going to be an inevitable cycle. You see players rise, they peak, they fall off, and then they ultimately disappear. And you certainly, again, see it in sports, even with the greatest of all time. Someone new comes up and pushes the old guard out. But you also see it with empires. You see it in business, uh, technology, and with our next connection as well. And that is with respect to regions, nations, and cities. And I think we might be witnessing another changing of the guard, this one global. Uh, The two ends of the spectrum may be Europe on one side, which appears to be fading fast, and India on the other side, which looks to be on the rise. So let's first connect to what's going on in Europe. Now, Europe is indeed fading fast. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal in mid-July that summed much of it up, but also, I think, missed a key aspect, which I'll get to shortly. But the bottom line is that Europeans are becoming poorer, and their quality of life is regressing back to decades. Purchasing power is literally melting away. And you see that in the most basic of consumer behavior, which is with respect to eating. The French are drinking less red wine. Spaniards aren't using as much olive oil. Germans are consuming less meat and milk, hitting the lowest levels in 30 plus years. And the once booming market for organic food has collapsed due to the high cost of organic food. And in Italy, my fellow Italians are in serious peril Check this out. The economic development minister of Italy had to convene a crisis meeting in May over prices for pasta after those prices jumped by more than double the rate of the national inflation uh, rate. And if Italians can't eat pasta and the French can't drink wine and the Germans can't eat sausage, what is Europe coming to? Well, it's not what Europe is coming to as much as where it has fallen to. Europe is in recession. That's only added to the funk. And average annual wages are declining nation by nation across the continent. The energy grid there is a mess. Inflation rages. The ECB, the central bank, it's raising interest rates to tame inflation. And that, of course, is creating pain to consumer loans and cost of capital and everything in between. The export economy, that's in shambles, particularly in Germany. Deficits are expanding, even in the more fiscally frugal nations. In taxes, they take a massive bite out of workers' paychecks and businesses' profits. So pandemic policies and the war in Ukraine, those things haven't helped. They've certainly piled on to what has already been a mountain of problems. Now, there was an example in that news story that sums up the entire situation quite well. Now, the crisis is hitting people far beyond just the poor in Europe. In Brussels, which, mind you, is one of the richest cities, not just in Europe, but on the globe. Teachers and nurses, they stand in line to collect half-price groceries from the back of a truck. And the vendor who runs this, uh, this truck collects food that's close to its expiration date from supermarkets and then advertises it through an app. Customers can order in the early afternoon and collect their cut-price groceries in the evening. 
Now, one of the vendor employees was quoted in this story as saying, quote, some customers tell me because of you, I can eat meat two or three times per week, end quote. These are professionals in the capital of the EU. These are, are nurses and, and teachers. Um, food scarcity has arrived. And big picture wise, the situation is pretty stark. So consider this. The Eurozone economy grew about 6% over the past 15 years. That's 6% total, not annually, compared with 82% growth in the United States the past 15 years. And that's according to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Now, that means that the average EU country is poorer per head than every American state in the union per head, except Idaho and Mississippi. And if the current trend continues by 2035, the gap between economic output per capita in the United States and the EU, it's going to be as large as the gap on economic output per capita between Japan and Ecuador today. OMG. And government makes all of this mess worse in the EU. Of course it does. Entitlements and lax work ethic via labor rules, they've created a massive drag on the economy. I mentioned uh, those pandemic policies that never reset the economy and society back to normal once pandemic passed. EU nations, uh, their lukewarm approach to defense spending and dealing with Russia helped to enable Putin in the war, which then brought on more economic and societal pain across the continent. And those taxes, of course, they don't help matters either. But nothing, nothing has caused more harm to the EU and nothing is a bigger root cause of its current quandary than the one thing that the Wall Street Journal story left out and that it refused to mention. And that is the EU's embracing of climate policies. Climate policies created energy scarcity. That drove inflation. Inflation drove up interest rates. And all those things combined to hit GDP and run fiscal budget deficits and enable a Putin. You roll it all up, and what does it lead to? Food scarcity and high food inflation, Europeans having to eat less, and a continent whose best days are now in the rearview mirror. Ask yourself this, constant listeners. As the U.S. chases and copies the EU's playbook on climate policies, are those states or cities that are leading the charge here? Are they growing and improving? Or like Europe, are they shrinking and degrading? Hello, San Francisco, Los Angeles, California, New York City, New York, in Chicago. You know, it wasn't that long ago when American cities in the EU, they were on the rise. And at times, of course, that was a messy and chaotic rise for sure, but a rise nonetheless. Today, that's not the case. Our once great cities are in decline, some of them in terminal decline. But there are places on the map where cities are in that frenetic rise stage of development. And India happens to be a nation that's blooming with them. And there's no better example than the mega city of Mumbai. That city, of course, serves as the setting for the acclaimed film Slumdog Millionaire, which is now, believe it or not, 15 years old. But I thought it would be great to connect to an illustration of what a city today that's focused on growth and on the future looks like versus a city in decline. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time, it ain't always pretty and it's far from perfect but it is the epitome of human progress in the human spirit, and I find all of it quite fascinating. Mumbai is defined by a lot of things, but the most obvious to me is just looking at a map and its geography. It's surrounded on three sides by water, 
specifically the Arabian Sea on two of those three sides. And it's a hot place. It's a humid place. And actually, when you think it through and you look at a map, the city is hemmed in even more than water on three sides. Because on that fourth side to the north, the land is boxed in by a large national park. And Mumbai is huge and getting huger by the day. In 1951, there were 3 million residents. Today, city holds 22 million people. And by 2055, it's expected there's going to be 30 million in this mega city. And in many ways, Mumbai serves as the economic hub of all of India. Bollywood is located in Mumbai. Um, people come from poor rural regions in India to the city to seek their future and their fortune. There's an estimate that 1,500 people arrive in Mumbai every day from the rest of India seeking their opportunity. And that should sound familiar to Americans because India and Mumbai today, in many ways, they parallel the United States and its cities a few generations ago. Now, all this growth strains infrastructure in the city big time. Only about 20% of the city has access to running water. Um, the transportation system, the best word I can use to describe it is overwhelmed. The railway system offers only four lines in a city. It can take hours to commute each day in many instances. And riding on the trains is a contact sport. It's like Frank Gifford playing football. You've got people shoving, jamming, pushing, racing, squeezing to jump onto and off of trains. To ride the trains in Mumbai, you need to be in shape and you need to be ready to rumble, much like Chuck Bednarik. That strain uh, creates safety issues, as you can imagine. And it's on a scale, these safety problems that Americans would shudder at. In 2019, almost 2,700 people died on the rail system in Mumbai. That's seven people every day on average. And Mumbai has expansive slums alongside high-rise luxury districts. The most famous slum is Duravi, which is also the largest in Asia. A million people packed into less than one square mile of surface area. Think about that. That's 20 times the population density of Paris, France. Water runs for about two hours each day in Duravi. No sewage. Open trenches and canals are the sewers. But yet free enterprise is found everywhere in that slum. You've got auto parts, clothing, recycling activities, you name it. And some of those workers are making as little as $3 a day, working all day. Um, families can live in 50, 55 square meter shacks, and most are happy to be there because it was better, believe it or not, than what they left, and they hope to make a better life for themselves soon. The potential for success, it drives people into Duravi. And there is the inevitable clash that's occurring as Mumbai swells and as it grows and as it expands. So if that geography that we spoke about dictates limited to no space, where water has you boxed in on three sides and you've got a national park on the fourth side, and Mumbai is growing like it is, then there's only one directional option for building, which is up, as in build vertical or high rises, which is exactly what's occurring on a grand scale. But when you plop in a new high-rise tower, you inevitably are going to displace a slum because every square foot and square meter of land in Mumbai is already occupied and already spoken for. And therein lies the inevitable trade-off 
now Mumbai and its developers and its politicians, they're trying to strike a balance where the new tower developer tries to find new homes and affordable housing for the displaced residents in the slum. But as you can imagine, it's far from perfect. And there are more than a few poorer residents of the city that can become quite disgruntled and irate over the process and the outcomes. Now, the new affordable housing, from what I've been able to see for residents, it leaves a lot to be desired, again, certainly from Western standards. It's still very tough living, but it's clearly an improvement from the slums and what you find there, no doubt about that either. And there's a small detail in all this that I think is a massive problem with the new affordable housing uh, concept and relocation, which is you need to have 20 years of tenure living in the slums to be eligible for new affordable housing upon relocation. I have no clue how someone even goes about starting to establish 20 years of tenure in a slum like a Dharavi. So as to what happens if you don't have 20 years in the slums, I'm guessing you're going to face much more dire options. It's the classic case of growth or progress in one category, creating opportunity and better outcomes overall, but also leaving some to many people behind or worse off. We've seen it throughout history. The Roman Empire displayed that characteristic. The Industrial Revolution had it. Colonialism certainly showed examples of it. Innovation, particularly disruptive technology, it carries those characteristics. Few things, actually no things in real life, including progress, are ever going to be perfect. And Mumbai's journey stands to be a net positive to millions of residents, both current and future. But that journey will also harm many people in its path. That's always been the case in human history, and that's always going to remain the case. And that discussion of Mumbai happily stumbles us into a connection, another quite interesting one. We talked about Mumbai as one of the world's chaotic, messy, beautiful, and inspiring megacities in India, also representing both bright future and big challenges. Well, this week, August 18th to be exact, it marks the anniversary of the death of a very controversial but extremely influential leader in India before and during World War II. A leader who challenged British rule and fought for common Indians, but who also stoked controversy when he collaborated with the Axis in World War II. In many ways, he was the counterbalance to the civil disobedience campaign of Gandhi. His name was Subhas Chandra Bose, or as he's more commonly or popularly known as in India, Nataji. Now, Bose is one of the extremely consequential human beings to a huge swath of humanity in a relatively recent period of time that most of us in the West have no clue of. We aren't uh, talking ancient history here, but instead we're talking about the 1920s through the 1940s. And we're not talking about a player of consequence in some sparsely populated corner of the world, but instead we're talking about a leader in setting the fate of India, now the world's most populous nation. He might be one of the best known individuals you never heard of. Did that even make sense what I just said? One of the best known individuals you never heard of? It sort of did, didn't it? It's at, uh, it's maybe a, a far middle yogiism, going back to our episode 114 dedication to Yogi Berra. The people in India were starving at the turn of the century in 1900 or so, and in the decades before World War II. 
But Bose's family was doing well and enjoyed stature and privilege. And British treatment uh, of, of Indians, despite the, the sort of privilege that Bose's family had, it infuriated Bose early in life. Now, to put the situation in perspective, it was not uncommon in India during that time to see signs in front of restaurants or, or shops that were run by the British that said dogs and Indians not allowed. Now, Bose was sent to London and he aced the Indian civil service exam, which was an extremely tough exam uh, to get through. But he refused to take the final exam and he effectively rejected a career within the British Indian civil service system. And instead, he went back to India and he wanted to help his people alongside Gandhi. Now, within a few months, he climbed the ladder politically within the nationalist movement and he became president of the Indian National Congress back in 1938. And he was aligned with Gandhi, but yet he contrasted with Gandhi. And it just goes back to the different and basic philosophies that the two employed. Gandhi, of course, believed that the path to rights and freedom was through civil disobedience and nonviolence. Bose felt that the only way to free yourself from the shackles of colonialism was to use force as needed. And that difference in approach or philosophy is pretty fundamental, as you can imagine. So it caused the rift in the movement to free India from colonial rule. Bose knew he couldn't overcome or match Gandhi's political backing in the Congress. So he resigned as president in 1939. And then here comes World War II. And that's when things really get interesting. On the outbreak of war, Bose advocated a campaign of mass civil disobedience in India to protest the decision of British leaders in India, get this, to declare war on Germany on India's behalf without consulting the Indian National Congress leadership. Probably wasn't the most astute move by the British. And having failed to persuade Gandhi of the necessity of this, Bose organized mass protests in Calcutta. He was thrown in jail by the British but he was released following a seven-day hunger strike. And Bose recognized that if Britain was his oppressor, then his allies would be the enemies of Britain, which at the time were Germany and Japan and Russia, at least Russia before Germany decided to invade it. So he sneaks away to Russia first, but the Russians weren't real receptive or excited about helping him. So then in April of 1941, Bose shows up in Nazi Germany, where the Nazis offered unexpected but welcomed sympathy for India's independence. Why? Because it would weaken the British, of course, their enemy. And Germany funded the opening of a free India center in Berlin, and a 3,000-strong Indian legion was recruited from among Indian POWs, prisoners of war, who were captured by Rommel in Africa to then serve under Bose. But by 1942, there was a problem. Uh, Germany was preoccupied with the Russian front by that time, and Bose wanted to jump over to Southeast Asia because Japan was still rolling up victories and heading toward India. So Hitler met with Bose in late 1940, I'm sorry, late May of 1942, and they agreed and decided to arrange a submarine to basically shuttle Bose to a Japanese submarine in Madagascar, which then took him to Japanese-held Sumatra in May of 1943. And then things took yet another interesting turn. So with Japanese support, Bose revamped the Indian National Army or the INA, 
which was comprised of Indian prisoners of war, of the British Indian Army who had been captured by the Japanese in the Battle of Singapore. And Bose instantly gave the Indian soldiers a purpose to fight, which of course was Indian independence. It was effective motivation and he was an excellent communicator. His most famous quote was, give me blood and I shall give you freedom. And although Bose was unusually driven and charismatic, he was militarily, I'll call it unskilled. So his war effort was a bit short-lived. And in late 44 and early 1945, the British Indian Army, they reversed the, uh, the Japanese progress on India and almost half of the Japanese forces and fully half of the uh, participating INA were killed, largely by British forces that were made up of Indian soldiers. So it was sort of Indian soldiers fighting Indian soldiers across these two armies. And the remaining INA was driven down to the Malay Peninsula and surrendered uh, with the recapture of Singapore when the British recaptured Singapore. Um, Bose, he chose to escape to Manchuria to seek a future in the Soviet Union, which he thought uh, would turn anti-British at some point. But he ended up being killed from third-degree burns that he received when an overloaded Japanese plane that he was on crashed in Taiwan in August of 1945. As I said, August 18th this week, back in 1945. And after that crash, a lot of Indians didn't believe that Bose was actually dead. And they expected him to return to secure India's independence. The uh, Indian National Congress, the main instrument of Indian nationalism, it praised Bose's patriotism, uh, but it did distance itself from his tactics and ideology. Um, Gandhi himself had a view on this. He said, Subhas Bose has died well. He was undoubtedly a patriot, though misguided. I thought that was some interesting commentary by Gandhi. And many had not forgiven Bose for fighting with Gandhi and for collaborating with the Japanese and with the fascists. Uh, Indian soldiers in the British Indian Army, some two and a half million of whom had fought during the Second World War, by the way, they were a bit conflicted. So they were sort of torn. Some saw the INA as traitors and others felt sympathetic because they saw them as sort of freedom fighters on behalf of India. The, uh, the British Raj never seriously was threatened by the INA. Um, but they ended up, uh, the Raj ended up charging 300 INA officers with treason. Um, and there were trials, but eventually uh, they backtracked um, from the treason charges in the face of opposition by the Congress. In fact, uh, the British trial to try to institute a harsh punishment on three key leaders of the INA backfired, where the publicity and the accusations it made many Indian soldiers and citizens realize that Bose was trying to liberate the nation from British rule. And the trials, which are referenced as the Red Fort Trials, they just uh, completely backfired on the British and they swayed public opinion in support of Indian independence. Uh, some mutinies in the military started to occur in 1946. And before you knew it, in 1947, the British Prime Minister Attlee said that the British would transfer power to in of India to Indians in 1948. Actually, it didn't take that long. India got its independence even sooner in the summer of 1947. So Subhash Chandra Bose, hero or villain, depends on your perspective. I think he did much to be admired and much to be despised. It's both perplexing and fascinating to a degree unrivaled by most historical figures. How did this man, who started his political career at the side of Gandhi, end up with Hitler, Mussolini, and Tojo? How did he start as pro-democratic and evolve into a fascist? On one hand, he was a key player, 
perhaps the key player in India's independence and throwing off of British colonial oppression. But on the other hand, he was a hardline nationalist who often supported fascism. He befriended Hitler, and he was clearly outright hostile to the plight of the Jews. He inspired millions on a subcontinent, and he was given the moniker that I mentioned earlier of Nataji, or a respected leader, but he was on the losing side of World War II, both militarily and ideologically. Complicated legacy during a complicated time. History gets recorded by the victors, but even that leaves a very muddled but incredibly intriguing legacy for Subhash Chandra Bose. So this is the week that marks the day when India lost a complicated hero. And this is also the week that the world of music lost a king and a queen. August 16th is the anniversary of the death of Elvis, the king, and Aretha Franklin, the queen of soul. Now, we talked up some Elvis a few episodes back, so let's talk a little bit about Aretha Franklin now. Where do you even begin? Detroit native who got her start in gospel music with her father minister. She never really lost those gospel roots. It it sort of seeped into all of her music and performance through the years. And a lot of people in the music business consider her the greatest female vocalist of all time. Certainly, she's on the Mount Rushmore of female singers. And I've got to say number one, or at worst, number two, in my opinion. Close race for me between her and another Detroit female vocalist by the first name of Diana. I would uh, need to give some serious deep thought as to how I would stack those two up. I do hugely enjoy Aretha Franklin. So how about my four favorite singles from her? They might be interesting to you because they're not going to be the biggest hits for her, like Respect or Natural Woman, as great as those songs are. Um, But these four songs are the best way for me to describe them. They're works of art from my perspective. So here's my four greatest um, Aretha Franklin singles. First one, I Say a Little Prayer. Opening lines of that song are awesome, which are the moment I wake up before I put on my makeup, I say a little prayer for you. Now, those lyrics were written about a woman who has a man fighting off in Vietnam, reflecting the thoughts of a lot of people in the late 1960s. And the song was co-written, of course, by the great Burt Bacharach uh, for Dionne Warwick, who originally Dionne Warwick sang it as a huge hit in 1967. But then Aretha Franklin does her version in 1968, the next year, which was also a huge hit. And I think Aretha Franklin's version is just phenomenal. Another song in the big four from Aretha for me is Ain't No Way. That's her at her most vulnerable It's a gorgeous song where she can showcase her ability to convey just pure emotion. So give a listen to Ain't No Way if you ever get a chance and if you haven't listened to it recently. Also, a big fan of her single Rock Steady. Uh, That's from the early 70s, 1972, I believe. Great song for her to display that legendary range of hers. I would not want to have to follow her after that song, either on the radio or live. But what's the best single from her, at least in your host's humble opinion? For me, it's Until You Come Back To Me. That's my all-time favorite from Aretha Franklin. Until You Come Back To Me captures everything about her that is exceptional and unique. Yes, numero uno for me. All right, time to call it an episode. We go our separate ways, and using the words of Aretha, Until You Come Back To Me, I hope next week. <laughs>